I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. For years, I've talked about the necessity for Democrats to regain political power through state legislative races. Republicans figured this out decades ago, and they've used their legislative majorities to shrink our rights, everything from voting rights to bodily autonomy, to the assaults on the rights of the LGBTQ community, and to those draconian and racist book bans. And they restrict rights in places where they don't have representative majorities. While Amanda Littman, the co-founder and co-executive director of Run for Something, an organization focused on recruiting and supporting young people who run for office, joins me to discuss just that. We talk about how Democrats can catch up to Republicans and gain state-level majorities. We also discuss what's holding that effort back. The Republican destruction of rights, particularly of voting rights, is moving at a breakneck pace. And if Democrats don't expand majorities during this year's midterms, little d-democracy could suffer irreparable blows. Well, Amanda Littman has been working on this for a very long time. She's an expert. So with that said, I truly hope you enjoy this episode and the wisdom of Run for Something's Amanda Littman. Amanda Littman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about my favorite topic. <laughs> you know, so as we move further and further away from the 2020 election, I think it's becoming more apparent to me that the power that Democrats thought that they'd gain by winning both the White House and majorities in Congress, they were pretty limited, right? One most recent example, I think, is the defeat of the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Those two pieces of legislation were really important, right? And they didn't pass. And, you know, meanwhile, we've got conservatives, they're passing more voter suppression bills. I have this anxiety around the fact that I feel like we're in a race against time to increase Democratic majorities before or during the upcoming elections. And if we fail there, that democracy as we know it, you know, it could end. You know, am I being hyperbolic? No, I think you're totally right. And in fact, I would broaden the scope of if we do not win power, not just in Congress, but locally um, in 2022, I don't know what the future of democracy looks like after 2024. This is it. Like, yes, every election up until now has been the most important of our election of our lifetime. And it feels crazy to keep saying that, but this is it. (laughs) So buckle up, I suppose. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, you know, we're not being hyperbolic, even though every time I tweet it, I feel like, you know, it does feel a bit dramatic, but it's not. It's absolutely true. If you think about the things that Republicans are saying they'll do once they get back into office, you know, we really have this one last chance, I feel. You know, I was just reading this report that was published by the Brennan Center for Justice about the status of 2021 voter suppression efforts by Republicans. And it was something like, you know, between January and December of last year, 19 states passed 34 laws restricting access to voting, right? And there were 440 bills with provisions that restrict voting rights in 49 states. And that was in the 2021 legislative session. So just in one year, that's what they've done. And I just wonder if there's something that Democrats can do to counter or slow down those efforts, you know, without having larger majorities in Congress. Definitely. First, I think it's worth noting you're absolutely right. The Republicans are running all of this in public. None of what they're trying to do is a secret. None of what they'll eventually do in 2014 or in 2024, excuse me, will be a surprise. They're telling us loudly (laughs) that their plan is to make it harder for people, especially likely Democratic voters, to vote and to elect people who undermine democracy and undermine access to the polls at every level in order to ensure that our elections are not being run fairly and that votes are not being counted accurately. The most important thing we can do, acknowledging that federal legislation is unlikely to pass, at least unless Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin and others change their mind about the filibuster, assuming federal legislation is not going to pass and knowing that we very much cannot count on this Supreme Court to 
adjudicate fairly on voting rights legislation that's coming up before them, although we have the best lawyers in the world working on these cases. We have to ensure that where we can win and where we do have a chance to control power, we are electing people who care about democracy. So to zoom out for a second, there are more than half a million elected offices in the United States. We do not have one federal election or one national election. We have 50 state elections and then 3,000 county elections and then thousands more city and township elections. And in about 35 states, the people who oversee those county and township and city elections are elected, which means we have a chance to put really good people into those offices. And we know this matters, not just because obviously it's good to have good people running elections, but because the other side is devoting so much time and so much money and so much energy to doing it. You know, Steve Bannon's going on his podcast every day and saying, run for precinct captain, go run for county clerk, go run for supervisor of elections. Trump is standing in front of the Pennsylvania Republicans and saying it is more important who counts the votes than who's on the ballot in the first place. They are putting so much time into this. And not to say we should take our cues from the other side, but we have to rebut that. So it is going to be so important in 2022 and in 2023 and even in 2024 that we elect pro-democracy people to these local election authority positions. You know, I mean, we don't want to take our cues from Republicans. Of course we don't. But this is not a bad cue to take, right? Like, I mean, they're basically just saying that if we want power, you know, this is where the power is at the local legislative level, right? That's not a bad cue to take. Like what you do with that power (laughs) is a bad (laughs) cue to take. But actually learning from their playbook is something that we should do. And the thing is, is that I know you and I have talked about this before, but, you know, they figured this out a long time ago where, you know, they had Project Red Map, where they, you know, mapped out this plan to win these races. And it seems like a long time for us to, or Democrats rather, to learn that lesson. And, you know, I know you have an answer to this. Is this how conservatives have so much power with so little electoral power? You know, it goes even further back than 2010. Um, There are memos chasing back to the 70s in which they talk about the ways in which corporations can win power is through, in small part, lobbying and engaging in local government and state government. You then see this start to happen even more so on issues like reproductive choice and on unions, where they run for and win city, county, state legislative offices in order to control the outcomes of those laws, knowing that in the way that our federal system works, most of the meaningful legislation comes from the state and local level. You then get to, as you say, 2010, um, where they run Operation Red Map. Carl Rove writes an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying, we're going to spend, I think it's something like $35 million in 110 state legislative races in very small towns. And this is why, because we know that if we control state legislatures. If we flip controls of these chambers, we can redraw the maps after the census and control Congress for a decade. If you control the levers of power, you can control who holds power. They have done so, and it's how they've been able to control the outcomes of governing without actually having national power in any meaningful way. And as my co-founder Ross and I like to say, we are on year 44 of a Republican 45-year plan to build long-term sustainable minority power. And Democrats are in year, generously, we'll say year six. So we are coming at it from a deficit. Now, it's not going to be easy (laughs) to make up this lost ground, but it is possible at the very least to staunch the bleeding and to make a dent so that we can get through the next couple of years and have a chance to really push forward once circumstances and population shifts and, you know, the public culture shifts in such a way that maybe we can win bigger locally and then win bigger nationally too. You know, back to your your comments about Steve Bannon, um, I wanted to ask about that because I think what's so scary to me is that 
you know, in this race against time, Republicans are electing more and more extreme candidates, right? You know, these people have no governing philosophy, have no interest in legislation, no interest to help people. They literally are making up problems to solve, <laughs> right? Like critical race theory. It doesn't exist in the way that they're telling their constituents it, it exists, right? So they're, they're winning more power without actually improving people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I just wonder, again, if it's hyperbolic to, you know, expect that in the 2022 elections that we'll see even more extreme candidates. You know, you have people from white nationalists on the ballot, right? QAnon believers, anti-vaxxers, oath keepers. Is this something that we realistically have to worry about? I think so. And I think we've already seen the impact of it. You know, I just saw a news story, I think it was last night or this morning, about a county clerk in Colorado, Mesa County, who is currently being indicted for having shared um, private election information with outside stakeholders. Um, She's like a QAnon conspiracy theorist who refuses to believe that the 2020 election was legitimate. Now, again, she was a county clerk. She literally ran the election. She's now running for higher office. She's running for Colorado Secretary of State. We've seen the impact that these folks are having on school boards, on library boards, um, on state legislatures, in cities. It is really dangerous to let these people get a stakehold, not the least of which is because they can then run for higher office. So when you get a QAnon member who's a school board member, they have at least a little bit of credibility to keep climbing because people assume, well, they can't be that crazy if they're on the school board. (laughs) When the (laughs) actual reverse is true, they can be that crazy and anyone (laughs) can be on a school board. So what do you think the biggest problem is for, I mean, because honestly, I think Run for Something started in 2017, right? Mm-hmm. And I know I talked to you later in 2017 when I started this podcast. And again, later, a few years later, I have literally been talking about the importance of state legislative races for Democrats and progressives for, feels like forever. Well, not forever. It's not, you know, 45 years long, obviously. But I mean, you can tell me, like, how is that going for us? Is it going slower than you expected or at the pace that you expected? I feel like it's very slow because, you know, again, I'm measuring this by my own anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you got to expand the time horizon. You know, the thing the Republicans have been really good about is investing for the long haul. So you can take a couple losses along the way if your ultimate measure of success is 10 or 20 years down the road. You know that you're going to have to lose a little and then lose by a little bit less and then lose by a little bit less until eventually you can win big. It's really hard for Democrats to feel that way because we do this for like a bigger purpose. We do this for a greater cause. We do this because we want to save people. We want to make people's lives better. It feels so urgent. These problems are so big. And they are. That's totally true. But, you know, because we fucked up a couple decades ago, we have to just be patient. And that sucks. It's such a crappy feeling. But It makes me in many ways feel a little bit hopeful to know that like every step forward, even if we lose by a little bit less, sets the groundwork for something bigger the next time around. We're we're both kind of contradicting ourselves because in a sense, we're saying that we're in a race against time to save democracy, but then we also have to be patient, right? And it's hard to hold those two messages, you know, together. And I'm thinking about a race like Virginia, which felt like you said, we take a few little losses, but in the end, we gain more, hopefully. But Virginia just felt so big to me because the Virginia trifecta, they made a lot of progress in Virginia. So that loss felt really big to me. No, I feel the same way. I mean, I was born and raised in Virginia. It was devastating to see us lose that governor's race. But I also think that's a testament to how much we can't let the organizing slide. I think Virginia Democrats on the state legislative level and the local level noted they felt less enthusiasm. It took them a little longer to raise money. It took the coordinated campaign a little longer to get stand up than it should be. You know, we have to work just as hard to hold on to our wins as we did to get them in the first place. 
that's the thing that makes this really difficult is you can't boom and bust it around the election cycle and you can't boom and bust it around the presidential battlegrounds or even the congressional battlegrounds. It needs to be everywhere all the time at the same amount of urgency. We got to treat this like a marathon and it's exhausting and it's expensive. And if we had made different choices 20 years ago, maybe this wouldn't be the case, but we are where we are. And that's what we need to do to fight back. And another thing that I worry about is messaging, right? And I think we saw this in Virginia. I feel as if Democrats are always on the defensive, right? And I believe that that is intentional on the part of conservatives. You know, we have to defend whether critical race theory is a real thing or not. And just recently, the most absurd thing that we defended was, you know, whether the Biden administration was giving out crack pipes, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> I just have to laugh. They just, again, they just make up things. They make up, you know, non-existent things to roll up their base. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure that Democrats have a unified message to counter that. And I think that they, in my opinion, should be talking about things that make voters more enthusiastic, like all the things that they have been able to pass and what they will do once they have more power. You know, I think you're right. I think it's always worth being distinct here about who the Democrats are that are doing the talking. Are we talking about congressional Democrats? Are we talking about Joe Biden? Are we talking about the Democratic pundits who go on TV? You know, for me, I'm always thinking about the thousands and thousands of local Democrats who are knocking doors and making calls and talking to voters about issues local to them. And I think they are able to break through in the way that some of the congressional race conversations can't. In no small part, because a member of Congress, candidly right now, can't honestly have a conversation about what they've done for people. I mean, they've done a lot. But it's really hard when that doesn't feel true to folks, whereas local leaders, you know, especially folks who are on city councils and school boards can really point to practical things they've done. You know, it's one of the reasons why Run for Something's MO is to really empower these local candidates to run the best possible campaigns, because we know they're trusted messengers who can speak authentically to their neighbors about local specific practical things they've done or want to do and then can point to because things happen faster. All of that brings us to a place where we have better messengers and better messages. You know, I, I never operate from a place we need a single democratic message. The party is too diverse, both like literally and also ideologically, and even we're spread out over a bunch of places. The Republicans don't have to deal with that. They can say the one crazy thing over and over again because their party is pretty limited in both the types of communities they're in and the types of people they need to reach. We have to do it all. And that means more of a bottom-up grassroots style of messaging. Have you all shifted your strategy? I know you've probably shifted your strategy between 2017 and now, but have you done something different or are you doing something different for the midterms, for the upcoming midterms? You know, we actually haven't shifted our strategy in any meaningful way, which is something I'm really proud of. We have always stayed focused on helping young people run for local office. This year in particular and last year too, we really sort of deepened our focus on races outside of state legislatures. We know state legislators are really important. And there's a national committee, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee focused on them. They're a sister district. There's swing left and flippable. There's a whole web of places that are there to support state ledge races. And we are there for all the state ledge candidates who come through us too. But we wanted to make sure that we were really doubling and tripling down on local elections. And this year in particular, we're really doubling, tripling, quadrupling, quintupling down on local election administrators and school board and library board races. We know that these are the positions that need the most help. We know these are the positions where young people can really run and win and lead and where their voices are needed. We know those are the positions that Republicans are focusing a ton of time on. And we know these are the positions that are really hard for most national groups to engage with. Now, there are more than 5,000 local election administrators 
who are elected over the course of the country, and more than 80,000 elected school board positions across the country. 20,000 of those are up this year. Some of those elections happen in November. Some happen at other points throughout the year. Um, In each of those categories, in local election admins and school boards, it's messy. A county does it differently than a city, which does it differently than the state. And in some places, you know, think about school boards. You can have the elementary school district and the middle school school district and the high school school district all in the same place. All of that is to say is that we're trying to deepen our engagement, but we haven't pivoted. We haven't changed. We're just trying to do more and go bigger. You know, is one of the challenges here is that a lot of Democrats and progressives aren't paying attention to these races, right? So you'll have some school board race that a conservative, an extreme conservative is running in unopposed, right? Mm-hmm. Is that part of the problem? Definitely part of it. I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. And I think this is where the Democratic Party's sort of national orientation around competitive congressionals and the presidential battleground has really hurt us because there are huge parts of the country where those maps just don't overlap. I think it's something we have to fix as a party and as an ecosystem, and it's difficult. I'll never toss that out and be like, oh, it's so easy. Just focus differently. It's so hard. It's so hard. But I think it's really important to like try and you know take care of your home, take care of your community, build power locally, knowing that it will ladder up and help us build power nationally, that we can start small and win big. And you still have an age range, right? Like you look for candidates that are 40 and under. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, run for something really does focus on young people. But I always want to be clear, it's not that other people shouldn't run too. Everybody should run for office. We just might not be the right group for you. And that's totally okay. Yeah, there are literally other, you know, <laughs> a half dozen <laughs> I can think off, offhand that are focusing on this. And you mentioned some earlier. Do you think that gives your candidates an advantage in maybe energizing voting blocks that were possibly apathetic? You know, the younger voters who may not be thinking about politics. Do you think that's helpful? I do. And I think part of it is because their staff are younger, their volunteers are younger, their donors are younger. It's their friends and family. So when you have a 22-year-old running for office, their first campaign volunteer is going to be their friends from school. (laughs) Um, It's going to be other 22-year-olds. So that just gives you sort of a different entry point and different perspective. There are certainly older folks, you know, we've seen this in the United States Senate especially, who can really engage young voters. But we have found that younger candidates just come at it from a different angle. So, you know, to the listeners here, what can they do to help you in your efforts to help Democrats generally win more state legislative races and just to help us win midterms? Oh, such a good question. Um, First, all of your listeners should run for office. Uh, Whether or not you meet run for something's demographic focus, we really, really, really need more good people to run locally. Um, So you can go to runforwhat.net. You can look up the offices available to you. Those are all up for 2022. And we are, of course, continually adding information for what we have for 2023 and beyond. Um, You'll start getting information from Run for Something about how to set up a campaign, about how to write a plan, um, and if you're eligible, how to get our endorsement. In many states, it's not too late to still get on the ballot this year. That's what makes it really exciting. This is a key moment. Send that link to everyone you know. Again, it's runforwhat.net. Second thing you can do is donations. Every dollar goes a long way for our work. Runforsomething.net slash donate is the place to go there. It really does mean the world to us and to me personally. I'm so, so grateful for every person who has said this matters, and I'm willing to put a buck on the table to prove it. And then third, start getting engaged locally. There are elections happening basically every week, every other week from now until November. There are things happening bigger and more important than the congressional races. So start knocking doors for a city council candidate or a school board candidate or making calls or sending postcards or whatever your form of volunteering looks like. Start doing so on behalf of a small race. It is incredibly meaningful. You get to make a really big impact in a very ultimately small pond. 
You might get to know the candidate themselves personally, which can be really fun. <laughs> um, and you'll get a chance to really see how this whole machine works. The nice side benefit is that depending on where you live, your work will ladder up to the top of the ticket. And we have seen this, that competitive state legislative elections in particular help build turnout for the top of the ticket. They help build turnout for Joe Biden anywhere from 0.6 to 1.6%. That's meaningful. That's a field program. So even if the candidate you're working on, working with doesn't win, you can help the broader party. It all matters, all of it. So whatever you decide to do, however you get involved as a candidate, as a donor, as a volunteer, thank you, because it, it means the difference. Yeah, exactly. And I just want to restate that runforwhat.net is where you can go to find out what um, seats are open in your area, right? That's right, runforwhat.net. Okay, excellent. Well, Amanda Littman, thank you so much for everything you've done. It's so good to talk to you again. And, you know, here's to the upcoming midterms. Thanks for having me.